Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. As always, I hope you are all staying safe and healthy. And I'm just going to jump into this week's episode. Um, We're going to recap last week, which was chapter 48. And we caught up with the trash can man who made his way west to Vegas, though not without a few problems here and there, namely the kid, a slightly unhinged man with a love of alcohol and delusions of grandeur. Flag dispatches of the kid with his gray mountain wolves, and Trash is finally able to find his way to Las Vegas, where he is brought into the fold by Lloyd. We also see that Flag has some very strict rules in Vegas, and if someone breaks those rules or is um, opposed against him, they are punished with death by crucifixion. This week, in Chapter 49, we are back with Larry's group. Lucy Swan wakes up at a quarter till 12 till midnight, noticing that the other half of the double sleeping bag that she was in is empty. She climbs out of the sleeping bag and heads to the west side of their camp, where she finds Judge Ferris, who is keeping watch with a Bible on his knee. The judge is 70 years old, and he joined them in Juliet. By now, Larry's group has grown to 15 adults, three kids, and of course, Joe. We find out that Lucy is searching for Larry, and Judge Ferris knows this already. He tells her that Larry's out by the highway, same as last night and the night before. Judge Ferris quotes uh, from the book of Job. The most essential part of this quote is, When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be gone? And I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. Lucy's not terribly enthused by this. But as the judge points out, I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. That's your man, Lucy. That's Larry Underwood to a T. She agrees and wishes she knew what was wrong with him. The judge seems to have an idea, but he keeps that to himself. And Lucy tries to work it out. It's not the dreams, because apparently no one is having them anymore, unless Joe does, but Joe is different. Everyone is healthy, at least since Mrs. Volman a woman they had picked up two days after they found the judge. She had been with a man named Dick Volman. Then a week ago, while camping out at Mother Abigail's house in Hemingford Home, Sally Volman had gotten sick. Not from the super flu, but she had eventually died. And Lucy thinks Larry feels partly responsible for that. And the judge seems to have quite a bit of insight into Larry's character. He says Larry is a man who found himself comparatively late in life. At least, that is how he strikes me. Men who find themselves late are never sure. There are all the things the civic books tell us the good citizen should be. Partisans, but never zealots. Respecters of the facts, which attend each situation, but never bender of those facts. Uncomfortable in positions of leadership, but rarely able to turn down a responsibility once it has been offered or thrust upon them. 
They make the best leaders in a democracy because they are unlikely to fall in love with power. Quite the opposite. And when things go wrong, when a Sally Volman dies of diabetes or internal bleeding or whatever, a man like Larry blames himself. The men the civic books idolize rarely come to good ends. Melvin Purvis, the super G-man of the 30s, shot himself with his own service pistol in 1959. When Lincoln was assassinated, he was a prematurely old man tottering on the edge of a nervous breakdown. We used to watch presidents decay before our very eyes from month to month and even week to week on national TV. Except for Nixon, of course, who thrived on power the way that a vampire bat thrives on blood. And Reagan, who seemed a little too stupid to get old. I guess Gerald Ford was that way, too. The judge wonders if Sally Volman had died of diabetes, but she hadn't had her insulin. So did she let herself die? Had it been suicide? Lucy thinks there's more to it. She quotes, I am full of tossings and turnings unto the dawning of the day. And she thinks that sounds like a pretty good description of a man in love. Judge Ferris is a little surprised that she knew all along about the thing he didn't want to say. But Lucy says that women know. Women almost always know. And then she heads off to find Larry, who would be sitting and thinking about Nadine Cross. Lucy joins Larry, who is sitting cross-legged on the shoulder of the road, as if in meditation. They're about 50 miles east of Boulder, Colorado, and if they get an early start around 9 o'clock the next morning, they would be in Boulder by lunchtime. We also learn that they had met Ralph Brentner, at least over CB radio. Ralph was calling it the Boulder Free Zone. Lucy liked the sound of that. It felt like a fresh start. Nadine had adopted the name with a religious zeal, as if it was talismanic. It was Nadine who suggested finding a CB radio a few days after finding the CDC in Stovington empty, but for the dead. Larry accepted the idea, the way he accepted most of Nadine's ideas, and Lucy does not understand Nadine at all. She knew Larry was stuck on the other woman, but Nadine didn't seem to want to have much to do with Larry beyond the usual daily routine. The idea of the CB radio was that it would be the easiest way to locate other groups and set up a place to meet. This led to a discussion among the group that then had reached half a dozen people with the addition of Mark Zellman and Lori Constable. The discussion led to an argument about the dreams. Lori reminded the group that they knew exactly where they were going. They were following Harold's party to Nebraska. The force of the shared dreams is just too powerful to deny. This, of course, set Nadine off because she didn't dream. She wanted some rational basis for pushing on to Nebraska, not based on a bunch of metaphysical bullshit. She wanted to place her faith in radios, not visions. Mark Zellman had called her out at that point asking why she woke him up by talking in her sleep if she didn't dream. Nadine got hysterical, asking if Mark was calling her a liar, because if he was, one of them would have to leave right then and there. Larry managed to smooth things over, and they ended up getting the CB radio. They began picking up the broadcast from Boulder, Colorado, 600 miles farther west. They could only hear Ralph at that point because they did not have a powerful enough transmitter to respond. As they drew closer, they picked up more information, such as Mother Abigail's full name was Abigail Fremantle. Lucy decided she could never think of her as anything but Mother Abigail. Her party had been the first to arrive in Boulder, and since then, the groups have been arriving. 
there had been 200 people in Boulder when they first heard Brentner's voice. In that very evening, they learned that there were at least now 350. Their own group would send the number well on to 400 people. When Lucy asks Larry what's on his mind, he points to the Pulsar watch on her wrist. And he says, I was thinking about that watch and the death of capitalism. It used to be root, hog, or die. And the hog who rooted the hardest ended up with the red, white, and blue Cadillac and the Pulsar watch. Now, true democracy. Any lady in America can have a Pulsar digital and a blue haze mink. Lucy says she doesn't know much about capitalism, but she knows one thing. A thousand dollar watch like the one on her wrist is no damn good anymore. No one knows what time it is. She says, four or five days ago, I asked Mr. Jackson and Mark and you, one right after another, and you all gave me different times, and you all said that your watches had stopped at least once. Remember that place where they kept the world's time? I read an article about it in a magazine one time when I was in the doctor's office. It was tremendous. They had it right down to the micro, microsecond. They had pendulums and solar clocks and everything. Now I think about that place sometimes, and it just makes me mad. All the clocks there must be stopped, and I have a $1,000 Pulsar watch that I hawked from a jewelry store, and it can't keep time down to the solar second like it's supposed to, because of the flu. The goddamn flu. Larry points out to her a very bright star in the sky, hard and unwinking, as it traveled across the sky east to west. For a moment, Lucy thinks it's a plane, but Larry points out that it's an Earth satellite and it'll be going around the Earth for the next 700 years, probably. They watch it for a moment before Lucy asks Larry why Nadine doesn't admit that she's having the same dreams as they were. Larry simply repeats what Nadine has said, that she doesn't dream. But Lucy points out that Mark was right about Nadine talking in her sleep. She's even woken Lucy up before, moaning in her sleep, saying, Don't. It's so cold. It's so cold. Larry believes that people can have nightmares. That doesn't mean they're about him. Lucy thinks Nadine is becoming unraveled. Larry can't help but agree. Nadine has dark circles under her eyes now, and her hair has become noticeably whiter. Lucy just comes right out and says it. You love her, don't you? And she continues that she knows Nadine loves him too, but she's scared. Larry asks of what, and... He recalls when he tried to make love to her three days after Stovington. Nadine had pushed him away, but Larry had known that she felt for him too. When he tried again, Nadine rejected him and said that if he did that again, she would take Joe and leave. When Larry asked why, she said if she could tell him, she would. And that had been that. Lucy recalls a girl that she knew back in high school named Jolene and how she had never finished high school because she dropped out to marry her boyfriend who had been in the Navy. Jolene got pregnant but lost the baby, and her husband was gone a lot, and Jolene liked to party. Her husband was a very jealous person and told her that if he ever found out she had fooled around on him while he was gone, he would break her arms and spoil her face. After a while, she met a guy, a phys ed coach at the high school, and they began to sneak around, but Jolene grew paranoid suspicious that her husband had friends watching her for him, that his friends could be anyone, a guy waiting on the corner for the bus, a salesman checking in at the motel behind her and her boyfriend. Her fear got so bad that she would scream if a door slammed or when somebody was coming up the stairs, which happened quite a bit considering they lived in a small apartment building. 
Eventually, her boyfriend got scared and left her. Not scared of the husband, but of Jolene. Just before her husband returned home, Jolene had a nervous breakdown. Because she loved love a little too much, and her husband was crazy jealous. Nadine reminds Lucy of Jolene. Lucy admits she doesn't like Nadine much, but she feels sorry for her. Larry asks if Lucy thinks Nadine is scared of him the way Jolene was of her husband, but Lucy doesn't know, maybe. All she knows is that wherever Nadine's husband is, he's not here. Larry thinks it's time to head back to bed, and Lucy starts to cry. He tries to comfort her, but she's not having it. He's already getting what he wants from Lucy. He points out that he never twisted her arm, and Lucy says that men are so stupid. For Lucy, all she needs is someone warm. She needs to love, and is that so bad? Larry doesn't think so, but Lucy says that Larry doesn't believe in that, so he chases Nadine while still having Lucy around to sleep with. Lucy feels resigned, and she tells Larry that if he ever catches Nadine, she'll be happy for him, but to please try not to be too disappointed. Lucy says, I just happen to think love is very important. Only love will get us through this. Good connections. It's hate against us. Worse, it's emptiness. Larry hugs Lucy and kisses her, and he says that he loves her as much as he can, and she knows that. They return to camp, they make love, and they fall asleep. The second half of this chapter is from Nadine's point of view. She wakes up shortly after Larry and Lucy had fallen asleep, and she wakes up terrified, but somebody wants her. It's true, but it's so cold. We learn a little about Nadine's past here. Her parents and brother had died in a car accident when she was six. They had been driving to see Nadine's aunt and uncle that day, but Nadine had stayed behind to play with a friend down the street. Nadine figured her parents hadn't minded that because they had liked her brother best anyway, because her brother had been their own, not adopted like Nadine had been. After the accident, Nadine had gone to live with the aunt and uncle since they were the only two relatives left that she had. They had taken her for a ride on the Cog Railway up Mount Washington when she had turned eight, but the high altitude had caused her nose to bleed, which had angered them. They were in their mid-fifties by the time Nadine turned 16. It was when she had been 16 that she had run through a field with a boy, and she knew that she would have given him her virginity had he caught her, but he hadn't. And Nadine knew then that she should and must wait. Where had her intended been back then? her dark bridegroom. On what streets, what back roads, clocking along in outside suburban darkness, while inside the brittle clink of cocktail chatter broke the world into neat and rational sections? What cold winds were his? How many sticks of dynamite in his frayed pack sack? Who knew what his name had been when she was 16? How ancient was he? Where had been his home? What sort of mother had held him to her breast? She was only sure that he was an orphan as she was, his time still to come. He walked mostly on roads that hadn't even been laid down yet, while she had but one foot on those same roads. The junction where they would meet was far ahead. He was an American man, she knew that, a man who would have a taste for milk and apple pie, a man who would appreciate the homely beauty of red, check, and gingham. His home was America, and his ways were the secret ways, the highways in hiding, the underground railways where directions were written in runes. He was the other man, the other face, the hard case, the dark man, 
the walking dude and his rundown boot heels clocked along the perfumed ways of the summer night. Who knoweth when the bridegroom comes? Nadine waited for him, an unbroken vessel. She had been tempted a couple of times, but never followed through. Now Nadine knew that the time was close. He had called, bid her to come west. Nadine had been feeling this would happen for some time now. While working at the school, she would pause and just know that a change was coming. A great wind is going to blow. Her hair had begun to turn white when she was 16. Not startlingly visible, but the white continued to spread over the years. She had once gone to a party in the basement lounge of a frat house. Nadine had fully intended to sleep with a boy that night, but something had held her back. The next morning, she had looked in the mirror and found that the white had spread again, seemingly overnight, although that seemed impossible. And so the years had passed, ticking away like seasons in a dry age, and there had been feelings, yes, feelings, and sometimes in the dead grave of night she had awakened both hot and cold, bathed in sweat, deliciously alive and aware in the trench of her bed, thinking of weird dark sex in a kind of gutter ecstasy, rolling in hot liquid, coming and biting at the same time. In the mornings after she would go to the mirror, and she would fancy that she saw more white there. Now, change was coming, and in her dream, she was getting to know her bridegroom better. She had never seen his face, but he was the one she was waiting for. She wanted to go to him, but she also didn't want to go. She was meant for him, but he terrified her. Then, Joe had come along, and then Larry, and things were complicated by then. Nadine had planned on going west before finding Joe, but she had felt responsible for him. She knew if she left him, he would die. And in a world where so many had died, to parcel out more death is surely the gravest sin. Nadine knew her virginity was somehow important to the dark man. If she let Larry have her, or any man, the dark enchantment would end. And while she was attracted to Larry and had set out to let him have her, Larry was not right. At least he hadn't been at first. She had brushed his initial advances away with a kind of contempt the way a mare might switch at a fly with her tail. She could remember thinking, if that's all there is to him, who could blame me for rejecting his suit? Then Nadine had realized that there was a great deal more to Larry Underwood. He was like one of those optical illusions, maybe even to himself, where the water looks shallow, only an inch or two deep, but when you put your hand in, you've suddenly got your arm wet to the shoulder. She saw how he had bonded with Joe, and she did feel a little jealous of it, the dependency Joe had with Larry, and the dependency that Larry had with Joe. It told her that perhaps she had judged Larry wrong. The nervous, self-serving exterior was a veneer, and it was being worn away by hard use. He had held them all together on this trip. While she wanted to let Larry make love to her, a part of her was still committed to the dark man and making love to Larry would be like killing that part of herself forever, and she wasn't sure she could do that. Knowing that the others were dreaming of the dark man was disturbing for her. Nadine had held tight to the idea that Stovington was a symbol of sanity and rationality, especially with the rise of the dark magic that she felt all around her. But in reality, that symbol of sanity had turned out to be a death house, and with the dreams, the old woman seemed to be an elemental force, just like the dark man was. Nadine had never dreamed of Mother Abigail, so maybe she wasn't completely lying when she said she didn't dream. However, she did dream of the dark man, and she knew his name, 
was Randall Flagg. She knew a lot about him now. She knew that they crucified people who went against his way of doing things. She knew more and more people were moving to Las Vegas. For Flagg, there was no hurry. Summer was almost over. The mountain passes would be filling with snow, and while they could plow, they would not be able to spare enough warm bodies to man the plows. So there would be a long winter in which to consolidate. And then next spring, well, she knew what he was planning. So Boulder was her last hope. Mother Abigail was her last hope. Boulder equated to good. And if only it could be that simple for her, caught in her crazy web of conflicting desires. Played over and over again, like a dominant chord, was her own firm belief that murder in this decimated world was the gravest sin. And her heart told her firmly and without question that death was Randall Flagg's business. But oh, how she wanted his cold kiss. More than she had wanted the kisses of the high school boy or the college boy. Even more, she feared, than Larry Underwood's kiss and embrace. We'll be in Boulder tomorrow, she thought. Maybe I'll know then if this trip is over, or... A shooting star scratched its fire across the sky, and like a child, she wished on it. So this chapter is not as long as Trash Can Man's chapter previously, but this is still pretty informative. We get two different points of view, one from Lucy and one from Nadine. Both women involved with Larry in some capacity. Larry and Lucy are apparently sleeping together now, but Lucy knows Larry is still hung up on Nadine. It clearly bothers her, but she seems to understand it enough to be honest with Larry about how she feels. She can sense that Nadine is becoming a bit unhinged, unraveled as she called it, and she feels like Nadine is acting like an old friend of hers from school, who had wanted to love others but was so terrified of her jealous husband that it basically prompted her into a nervous breakdown. Given what we know about Nadine, how she's now intended for Flag, this is a fairly accurate analogy. Despite her desires for other men, including Larry, Nadine pushes them away. She knows if she lets them have her, her bond with the dark man will be broken. And she wants to break the bond, but she doesn't. Conflicting desires. Nadine feels him luring her west, but she's also clinging to the hope that Boulder can be her savior, that Mother Abigail will somehow save her from her destiny. And it's interesting that Nadine feels like surrounding herself with good while in Boulder, as if that could save her, yet she also knows that sleeping with Larry would end the enchantment that the Dark Maid has over her. So there's an option, but she doesn't want to do it. Larry does not deny loving Nadine to Lucy, but he does tell Lucy that he loves her as much as he can. It's still pretty clear that if Nadine came to Larry, he would likely choose her over Lucy, and Lucy probably knows that. There's nothing wrong with Lucy. She seems capable of loving Larry, and she only wants that for herself too. But Larry continues to cling to something that is wrong for him, as is in his character, and Lucy recognizes that. She knows that if he ever has Nadine, that it will lead to disappointment, but she'll be happy for him. The Dark Man has claimed Nadine for some time now, long before the flu decimated the country. There were times that Nadine knew something was coming, something big, and that's why she's been waiting to have sex. Her purity is important to flag, which makes sense, I guess. He wants a woman that no one else has had, but why Nadine? What was it about her that he chose? And it seems like he's touched her 
um, over the years through her dreams. And every time she's felt the urge to be with a man, she pulls back and her hair continues to grow white. And that's most definitely Flag's doing. It's like being touched by him, even in her dreams, is so traumatic that her hair is turning white from it. I don't know that Nadine really understands what's happening. It's interesting that she's never dreamed of Mother Abigail. Trash Can Man has dreamed of Mother Abigail, but not Nadine. Of course, Trash Can Man considered (laughs) Mother Abigail to be a nightmare, but he still dreamed of her. So what is it that is blocking Mother Abigail out of Nadine's dreams so fully? Is it something about Nadine or is Flag blocking those dreams from her? Is Nadine truly able to be saved? Or does the dark man have his claws in so deep that it's hopeless? Nadine has always been a really interesting character for me. I like that she is not a one-dimensional, you know, seductress, the the imp's bride or whatever Mother Abigail called it. She is conflicted to where she does crave Flag's kiss and she has been waiting for him despite knowing that if she sleeps with somebody else, that tie, that connection with him is gone. Um, It seems like she wants that to happen, yet she doesn't. So she's sort of battling um, herself internally about what she can have and what she really wants. And we see a little bit of that before with Trash Can Man and even Lloyd. We saw brief moments of maybe, I don't want to say good inside of them, but those moments where they knew they had to decide that they had a chance to either, you know, they could go with Flag or they could remain true to themselves, I guess, in a way. Um, But Flag has this incredible ability to choose the people who are weak, who need a leader. Had Lloyd, you know, pulled away from the dark man, he would have died in that cell after resorting to cannibalism. Um, Trash had that one brief moment of clarity in the last chapter where Lloyd was offering him that stone. And Trash knew that if he rejected, he had that one last chance to be Donald Merwin Elbert again. But he chose the stone. He chose flag. So they both made their choices. And as as much of a choice as they had anyway, they had that choice, they made it. So I feel like Nadine will be making that choice as well. And she has two sides here. She's going to go to Boulder. Will Mother Abigail be able to save her? Can she save herself? Or will she give in to Flag's temptation? Um, I'm really excited to see where she goes. And, you know, Nadine could have just been the virgin bride. Um, she's just hanging around waiting for flag and her virginity is a big part of flag's desire for her, which I get. Um, but I'm really glad that King didn't just make her a sexual being, you know, that's not all there is to her right now. So I was, I'm really impressed by Nadine's character. Um, I know that she gets a bad rap from some people, but, uh, she's always been such a fascinating character in this book for me. We also learn that Larry's group has picked up a few more people, including a new character called Judge Ferris. We don't know much about him yet, other than he's 70 and he's a godly man, and he seems to be very observant. Uh, He has pretty great perception of people, which if he's a judge, uh, that makes sense. And I really like how we see Larry through three different people's eyes, Judge Ferris, Lucy, and Nadine. 
it's evident that Larry has grown as a person since the beginning of this book. That self-serving part of him, you know, that's still there a little bit, but mostly that was just a mask for something deeper. And this situation has forced him to mature and take on a leadership role, whether he wants it or not. It's very reminiscent of Nick, actually. And when I was reading that quote about how good leaders are the ones who don't want power, um, they're reluctant, but they'll take that responsibility. That is very much Nick Andros and Larry. Um, I think you can see a tiny little bit of it in Stu as well. Larry's relationship with Joe has deepened and taken on sort of a father-son relationship. Um, this is something that Nadine caused her to realize that Larry is not as shallow as she first imagined him to be. And she has to contend with her own jealousy regarding that because Joe knows that she doesn't need him the way Larry does. They've also been able to communicate with Ralph using the CB radio to stay in touch with Boulder as they head west to Colorado. It seems as though Mother Abigail has drawn, has drawn quite the crowd, almost 400 people. Um, I don't know how that is um, comparable to Vegas, but I imagine by the time we see Larry again, they'll be in Boulder. And how will Nadine react to Mother Abigail? And how will Mother Abigail react to her? Um, remember in the last chapter, she woke up with a sense of foreboding after Trash Can Man had uh, ridden his bike north of Hemingford home. She had woken up cold um, and full of pity and fear, but for what she didn't know. So will she be able to sense that inside of Nadine as well? Um, I'm really eager to see how those introductions are made. Next week, we will be in Boulder, too, with Stu and Glenn and the others as, as they start to discuss just what kind of society that they're looking to form in Boulder. And is Glenn going to be correct that society as a whole will not have learned anything from the super flu? Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they try to reform democracy, um, what kind of leadership they're going to put into place, what kind of power um, I'm imagining that that will be a difficult conversation uh, with a lot of debate, but hey, you never know. So that will be next week in chapter 50. And that's it for this episode of The Circle Opens. I hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I kind of liked seeing this chapter through Lucy and Nadine's eyes. I kind of liked seeing how they both perceive Larry. Um, we definitely got a lot of character growth from Larry and we didn't even have to we weren't even with him all that long in this chapter. So uh, King's doing a really good job at kind of folding these stories together um, and spreading them out. So um, I'm really excited to see where we are next. Um, chapter 50. This is crazy. We're making such good progress, you guys. <laughs> so uh, that's it. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, uh, I would love it if you could leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. To everybody who's already done so, I truly appreciate it. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can always find me on social media at The Circle Opens. Um, it's been a very uncertain, trying time for everybody. Um, I've been home in the past month, and I, I really do have waves of creativity. There are days where I'm like on social media, I'm answering questions, I'm having discussion, and then there's some days where I can't even think to pick up my phone for much more than to send a text or two. Um, but I think that's probably the same for a lot of people. So hang in there, stay safe, stay healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>